So yeah, let's get started. Om Manjana Timirandasya Nyanangjana Shalakaya Chakshurum Militum Yena Tasmai Shri Guru Vema Siddhanto Palasara Nityarasikam Hang Sang Vilasatmakam Adariyakya Sadama Sevakadanam Vishramba Bhakti Pradam Yakya Yakti Vichakshanan Bhagavato Vashishta Shakya Sada Vande Hang Chuparari Namakayatin Shri Bhakti Vedantinam Pancha Kalpatarubhyas Cha Kripa Sindhubyeva Cha Patitanam Bhavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Namaha Ajuna Lambita Bhujau Kanaka Vatata Sankirtanai Kakataro Kamalaya Takshau Vishwambara Dvijavara Yuga Dharma Palau Vande Jagapriya Karau Karuna Vatara Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sahodito Gurudaye Pushpavanto Chitro Shando Tamonudo Vande Hang Shri Ramakrishna Abhaya Charanasukau Sukhadau Paramananda Sundaro Subhalau Priyo Hey Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandhu Jagapate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostate Tapta Kanchana Gorangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Rishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vandana Karite Mui Kata Shakti Tari Tamabuddhi Doshe Mui Damba Matrakori Tatapi Mukera Bhakya Manera Ulas so, Hare Krishna, welcome everybody. Um, so, uh, I don't think there's an interpreter today, so, so I don't think I need to worry about that. Um, so, yeah, let's get started. Um, so, by Padmanabha Maharaj's grace, um, I've got the good fortune to share something again for the Top of Vivek series. Uh, I've personally been very nourished by the series, um, although I'm, I'm often a week behind or two weeks behind. Uh, I think I'm two weeks behind at the moment because um, there's so many, <laughs> but it, they're wonderful. Um, and it's great to have all, all these mini series to explore um, so many aspects of, of our philosophy, because obviously our philosophy is fast. There are so many aspects to our philosophy um, that we're very fortunate to find ourselves connected to. So um yeah i'm very thankful so thank you to everyone uh involved in keeping it going um and initially when i was asked uh to talk for this month i wasn't sure what to speak about um because time hasn't allowed for much planning over recent months so i was in a little bit of anxiety uh, of not being able to prepare anything um but with a local group here um we've been going quite thoroughly through the bhagavad-gita and at the moment we're exploring the fourth chapter so i thought it might be useful um to share some insights that came from our studies there um and it helps because i already have some notes uh that i was taking for for that um study group and so i've tried to tailor them for this specific series um and maharaj agreed it, it'd be nice to have um a series on chapter four as well because there's already been some nice classes on the first three chapters of the gita so we had uh, Shamananda um, kick us off with the first chapter, and then uh, Krishangi uh, with the second chapter, and more recently um, Chittahari, uh, he gave a series on the third chapter, and I recommend all of those, they're, they're all worth checking out. Um, so it seems like a good time to do a series on the fourth chapter, and so many things could be said on the fourth chapter, there are so many uh, things actually that can be drawn out, um, there, there's a lot packed in there. I remember uh 
hearing, maybe it was from Shamananda's class, I, I'm, not, I'm not too sure, but I remember hearing uh, that when our Guru Maharaj uh, did a deeper study on the Bhagavad Gita himself, each chapter became a new favorite chapter. Um, and then he would study the next chapter and that would become his next favorite chapter. Um, so uh, as I said, I don't recall where I heard it, but I, I can very much identify with that, that although we're only four chapters in, in the study group at the moment. Uh, the fourth chapter is currently my favorite, uh, as much as I like the previous three. And I'm sure that will change more as we progress through it. Because um, we've been studying for about a year now. We're spending quite a lot of time on it on a few verses at a time. So I thought I would draw from that fourth chapter, still fresh, and it helped hopefully cement more things in myself too. Um, and also it, it kind of ties in nicely with the series that was previously on the Saturdays. So Shamananda, again, he was giving a, a nice discussion on Gaudiya Vaishnavism coming to the West. And so this is a nice continuation on that theme in some ways, because it's about how Krishna comes to this world in general. And also recently, Guru Maharaj, Srila uh, Bhaktivedanta Tripurari Maharaj, our Guru Maharaj, he spoke about these things recently in his classes on Guru Leela. Um, but hopefully there will be some fresh things as well, or at least some good revision for those who've heard many of these concepts and topics. So um, although our primary direction will come from, um, from our Guru Maharaj's Gita itself, and also the discourses he, he's given on, on some of these verses, uh, we'll also take some things from some other Acharya's writings. So many of you will recognize some of the points raised from other classes you might have heard, um, but hopefully it'll still be useful, even if you're already familiar. Um, and I, I, I also, as a final kind of caveat, um, I'd like, uh, I really liked how Shamananda expressed in his first class on the Gita of kind of trying to act in that role as, as the woodcutter um, when uh, Vyasadeva was trying to have um, Shukadeva Goswami hear the Bhagavatam to, to attract him. So um, hopefully some good will come of me just parroting some of these concepts that we've brought out uh, from some of the classes and the readings and these things. So um, please forgive me where it's obvious that I'm parroting, but uh, hopefully there'll be some fresh things there too. And at the very least, hopefully help myself realize on a deeper level too. Um, so let's jump in and chapter four is special for many reasons as i said there's so many different directions we could go with chapter four um it speaks about sacrifice thoroughly especially nearer the end um obviously the concept of guru uh comes out um and yeah it brings out some of the qualities of krishna but it also makes clear uh, what it is that brings Krishna into this world and how he decides to come here, or avatar tattva, as it's sometimes termed. So we have five sessions, uh, actually, in this series, because there are five Saturdays in April. So I thought we would focus on the first 11 verses, but with an emphasis on the different ways that Krishna connects to us uh, in this world, because Krishna does connect to us in many different ways in this world. Um, and there are other topics that will naturally be discussed in relation to this, but this is where our focus is going to be. So even in five sessions, uh, it won't be a comprehensive study of those first 11 verses, because there really is so much to, to derive from them. Um, but hopefully still there'll, there'll be enough, enough to keep us busy. <laughs> so uh, it's worth, before we dive into the fourth chapter, it's worth reviewing, uh, at least briefly, the previous chapter to set some context as well. So chapter three 
as, as you're all probably familiar, uh, it emphasized um, Nishkam Karma Yoga or detached action, act, acting with detachment, with, with no desire for the fruits of the results of that action. And ultimately, Krishna also brought in there as well, um, offering those results too, in, in, in one way. So Krishna was really emphasizing to Arjuna, who would suggest that he, he go to the forest, of course, uh, you know, go and sit and meditate uh, like this. So um, Krishna really was is trying to steer Arjuna away from that mindset and really engage him in action, um, pointing out that, you know, I mean, he gave, he gave many different reasons and there are many things brought out in the third chapter. But one is about having the proper adhikar or qualification for sitting, but also that even if someone does have that adhikar or qualification, there's still one should act in the world for various reasons. So one of the reasons, for example, to set an example for others and, and, and other reasons too. But unless um, one has a pure heart, it's not possible to sit and meditate peacefully anyways. So this is one thing that was brought out quite a lot in the third chapter, because the mind, uh, our Guru Maharaj often makes this point that the mind will naturally go to those attachments that make us move in this world. And I'm sure we've all got that experience ourselves, at least personally speaking, I can say that when we're chanting Japa, for example, which is a form of meditation, uh, many times, you know, sometimes I have, have nice rounds uh, or I'm chanting quite nicely, but there are certainly many, many, many times that my mind does wander to other places and I have to bring it back um, and all sorts of things. Sometimes things maybe even connected with devotional service, but sometimes just random things, mundane things and so on. So uh, we've all got that experience that, you know, while we're in that heart cleansing process, um, it is difficult to just sit and meditate peacefully in these things. And so instead, Krishna advised Arjuna to act in a way that he's thinking of God uh, or thinking of transcendence, think, thinking of self-realization, these kind of things, but, but particularly God in terms of offering the fruits of action to God. So, uh, you know, the point being that our minds go where our, our energy is really, or where our, you know, you could say where your money goes. If often people are thinking of their, their finances, these things, or you could say our energy, where we put our energy, where we invest ourselves, these kind of things. So our mind naturally goes to these places, to where our heart is, you could say. So where we put our energy is where our meditation will go. So Krishna advised Arjuna, you know, practice self-realization, but in a practical way. And he also brought some bhakti into the process even there. Uh, but by acting in this way, by practicing karma yoga, because really he was speaking about Nishkama karma yoga, um, even though he, he brought um, some bhakti in there. But um, by practicing this, one's heart is purified and knowledge should arise as a result. And of course, not theoretical knowledge, but jnana in particular, which is insight or wisdom, uh, particularly into, into the nature of, of the self or the nature of uh, Brahman also, non-dual consciousness, the nature of spirit, you know, is termed in many different ways, uh, but um, this is the kind of knowledge, the kind of realization that should come from that kind of uh, detached action. Uh, or dutiful detached action. And so this was recommended as the means to attain transcendental knowledge of the self. And of course, knowing the self is also part of the solution to the problem of lust or material desires, attached things that attach us to this world, that keep us bound here. And so Krishna also discussed that at the end of chapter three. And so by engaging in karma yoga, by offering one's actions to Bhagavan, 
this 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 will lead to mystic insight or wisdom this kind this kind of knowledge we're talking about and it, it's not the kind of knowledge that we can just read a book and okay we've got the knowledge and now <laughs> there we go we realize in this sense you know this is something that comes in a particular way and so krishna's bringing out what that way is and so he emphasizes sacrifice for example and this will come up also uh at the end of this chapter um but the immediate fruit of this kind of action of this kind of karma yoga is knowledge of the self and to know the self means also knowing what we're part of right we're part of something much greater um and we'll find that out more as we progress through chapter four uh, for example, that the self is a Shakti or an energy of Bhagavan. Uh, it exists not, not by itself, but it's in relation to something or someone uh, that's much bigger than ourselves. So um, this is how chapter three was left off, really, that it kind of brought out um, some of those things that block us from seeing uh, the self properly and the self in relation to the, the greater <laughs> self, if you will. Um, so chapter four is sometimes called Jnana Yoga, or um, sometimes it's termed Transcendental Wisdom, Transcendental Knowledge, these kind of titles really referring to Jnana. And so it, it, it's about that knowledge that Krishna is saying Nishkan Karma Yoga will lead to, uh, that inner wisdom that is the fruit of this selfless action. And so ultimately, it will let one establish their connection with God, with God in some way, shape, or form. Of course, there are different ways, and we'll speak about that in later sessions. But, um, but this this kind of action uh, will help help also establish one's connection in in this direction. So, although karma yoga and jnana yoga are discussed in these chapters, we also find, especially through our um, acharya's commentaries and and different. These, these kind of places that Krishna is really setting the stage for bhakti. And so as hopefully we'll see in coming sessions, bhakti is very much found in chapter four, although generally we think of the middle six chapters as being about bhakti. Um, Bhakti is 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 very much present. Uh, I mean, it's, it's present throughout uh, the book actually, as we as we study the different chapters. But but quite quite, I guess I'd say a bit more explicitly in chapter four as well. So Krishna speaks about combining karma and jnana in the next chapter. But as we know, the result of both these yogas are also found in bhakti. And we know that the whole Gita um, is about bringing us uh, through Arjuna to the path of bhakti. And so uh, for that reason, uh, even though chapter four is in one sense about jnana yoga, it introduces some concepts that highlight bhakti as well, because you can't speak about knowledge, for example, without speaking about the object of knowledge. And as we know, the object of knowledge is also the object of bhakti, it's Krishna. So Krishna will, for the first time, um, speak directly about himself. Uh, we haven't heard this in the Gita so far, and he'll speak about his eternality, his activities, the reasons for his appearance. Um, he's going to speak about how this kind of knowledge descends into this world. And it's this kind of transcendental knowledge that Krishna is speaking about that will strengthen the intelligence more and help him, help one to gradually overcome the calm or the lust, the, the attachment to this world, the desire for things of this world, um, that keep us distracted, and you could say keep us covered from seeing the real self, if you will, uh, that is discussed at the end of chapter three. And so uh, later in this session, um, and, and next week also, particularly next week, we're going to discuss parampara, 
but and how it's a way that Krishna appears in this world. Um, and this comes out particularly in the first three verses. But verses uh, 4-5 to 4-15, they're also particularly relevant and nourishing for devotees because we learn more about the nature of Bhagavan or Krishna, more about the personality of God. And this is something, as I say, has not really come up in the Gita so far. And as devotees, as bhaktas, aspiring bhaktas, however you like to look at it, devotees naturally want to hear about Krishna's nature and qualities. Um, that, that's, I mean, that's uh, our whole thing, right? Is we like to hear about Krishna, Shravanam, uh, and, and speak about them, Kirtanam. And so it, for devotees also, it's a nice little break uh, from the main topics that the first six chapters are about. And so the chapters so far have been about Nishkam, Karma, Yoga, and Jnan, and these kind of things. And Krishna will expand on these things more also, both at the end of this chapter, but also so, uh, the, the other, other chapters to come in different ways. And so... Uh, Krishna has been mainly focused by, by presenting this in helping Arjuna to realize the self, uh, to realize the Atma, to realize the self as something beyond all these temporary things in this world, beyond the temporary material identity. So we'll, we'll learn about Krishna directly in this chapter. We'll learn about his omniscience, his eternality, and we'll learn also why he appears in this world. And a point our Guru Maharaj uh, often points out in his discourses is, is that, um, you know, this world, when we, we, we look at this world, it's really the opposite of Krishna's nature, um, because this world is temporary and it's full of ignorance. And so we're going to learn about how Krishna, his, his nature is the opposite to this. He, he's omniscient and eternal, but yet he appears in this world. So we'll learn about why that is too. And we'll also learn about the power of understanding these points and understanding something about Krishna in the first place, especially in regards to attaining liberation, um, which liberation is the goal of Jnana in a traditional sense. Um, of course, as bhaktas, as devotees, we want more than liberation. We want Krishna Prem, but liberation is a byproduct of that. And so as we're in this chapter of Jnana, Krishna emphasizes the main goal of Jnana uh, as a result of understanding his position in relation to this world. So then what we'll also explore is um, other ways that Krishna appears in this world that result in us experiencing there being so many different paths, for example, so many different religions. You know, that's a question that often comes up, especially, uh, you know, present. Uh, something as the absolute truth and these kind of things uh, and you know and obviously there are religious aspects to this path also so the fact that um, uh, there are many paths many religions you know people often wonder well what, what do you think of other religions what do you think of other paths and these kind of things um, you know especially when we say there's only one god and so there'll be more insight into those kind of things too Krishna will bring some of these things out so we'll explore that too and all of these topics that I've just um, summarized that we're going to go into, they're naturally connected with Jnana uh, and the kind of Jnana that we develop in our particular practice, even as bhaktas, and that's Sambandha Jnana. So chapter four, and, and especially these first verses, they're, they're very relevant for us. Uh, not, not that there aren't many things relevant and that we can't derive from other early chapters, of course, uh, as we've already heard, as I mentioned earlier in some of the other series on the Gita in the top of Vivek sessions. But as bhaktas, we will have a natural connection to these topics because they are directly about Krishna, uh, who, of course, is the object of our bhakti.
So, <clears throat> excuse me, bef before we start, um, I thought it might be useful to read just in this session, the first 15 verses um, all together uh, in order, because then when we're discussing them, we may jump around some verses to highlight certain concepts and different concepts that run through the verses in relation to Krishna's appearance. So there may be some verses we combine in future sessions that are out of sequential order. So I thought it might be nice to combine them for this session, just so we kind of got some context, refresh ourselves, even if we've read the Gita many times. And also, as I mentioned, we will be focusing on the first 11 verses, but Krishna's speaking about himself goes through to verse 15 in this chapter. But the last four verses, we may touch upon them briefly in, in relation to verse, verse 11. We'll see how we do. But Krishna at that stage, he's starting to swing the conversation back um, to Nishkan Karma Yoga and Yan and swinging back to, to, to encourage Arjuna to perform Nishkan Karma Yoga uh, while understanding all the things he's taught, uh, you know, Krishna's relationship with this world and, you know, particularly the Varnashram society that Arjuna's uh, being encouraged to act in. So Krishna wants Arjuna to be in this world, but not of the world, uh, you know, like he is. And so he's been explaining, as we'll see, uh, that that's his nature, too, um, even when he's, he's in the world, you know. So we won't focus so much on that side of things for this particular series, though naturally it's also relevant for our path, too. But as I say, we're going to focus on the concepts connected to Krishna appearing in this world in different ways, and especially from a bhakti perspective. So. Let's read the first 15 verses, and then uh, we'll explore the verses and concepts that I felt were particularly relevant uh, for Krishna's descent into this world. And again, especially for us in the school of bhakti. So uh, we're going to read from um, this edition, from our Guru Maharaj's translation, Srila um, Bhakti Vedanta Traparari Swami. It's a very nice edition if you've not read it, highly recommended, beautiful commentary. Um, so I'm going to read, read the translation from there. And then we'll dive into some more discussion. So, the Lord of Sri said, I explained this imperishable science of yoga to Viviswan. Viviswan spoke it to Manu, and Manu in turn imparted it to Ikshvaku. O conqueror of the enemy, visionary kings thus obtained this knowledge through disciplic succession. At present, under the influence of extended time here on earth, this teaching of yoga has been obscured. It is this very same ancient teaching of yoga that I'm teaching you today. It is the ultimate secret, but I tell it to you because you are my trusted devotee and friend. Arjuna said, you, you took, excuse me. Arjuna said, you took birth long after Viviswam was born. How then am I to understand that you instructed him previously? The Lord of Sri said, Arjuna, both of us, both of us have passed through many births. I know all of them, whereas you, subduer of enemies, do not. Although I myself am birthless and by nature imperishable, and although I'm the controller of all beings, nevertheless, remaining in, in control of my material energy, I manifest by my own inner power. Whenever, O descendant of Bharat, Dharma is diminished, and unrighteousness is on the rise. At that time, I myself manifest. For the protection of the saintly and the destruction of evildoers, as well as for the purpose of establishing dharma, I manifest in every age. 
One who truly understands the divine nature of my birth and activities is not reborn upon giving up his body, but comes to me, O Arjun, free from attachment, fear, and anger, with mind absorbed in thinking of me and taking refuge in me. Many persons in the past were purified by the fire of knowledge and attained me. In whatever way people take refuge in me, I reciprocate with them accordingly. Everyone in all circumstances, O Sanapritha, follows my path. Worldly people who desire material success perform sacrifice in worship of the gods. Surely in this world, they quickly get results from such ritualistic acts. In consideration of the influence of the gunas and one's karma, I created the fourfold division of socio-religious order, caste. Although I created this system, you should know that I am imperishable and not responsible for the results derived from it. There is no work that implicates me. I have no desire for the fruits of action. One who understands me thus is not bound by reactions to work. Having known this, ancient seekers of transcendence also performed action. Therefore, now you should also act as the ancients did. So, although Krishna speaks uh, more explicitly about how he descends in this world uh, in response to Arjuna's question in verse 4, uh, Krishna actually starts this chapter with the first way he descends in this world to us uh, through the parampara. This is generally the, the first way he comes to us in this world. Um, so a discussion about Krishna's descent into, into this world, it naturally has to start with the parampara. And also, although we'll see how um, Bhakti brings Krishna here to this world, and also the importance of knowledge about Krishna, and how Krishna appears in different ways to different people, directly or indirectly, these other topics, they're naturally tied to this principle of parampara uh, in the way Krishna discusses it at the start of chapter 4. And so there are quite, quite a few sweet and interesting concepts that our, our acharyas or our teachers, they bring out of these first three verses that discuss parampara. But we're going to focus much of next week's session on exploring those, because there's quite a lot in there that tie together with some other things. So I think we're going to save those for next week. But for the rest of this session, we're just going to look in a more general sense uh, of this concept of parampara, so we can set the stage for our discussions next week. So <clears throat> most, uh, if not all of you, will be familiar with this concept of parampara. We, we learn it quite early on in Krishna consciousness, right? Uh, or in Bhakti Yoga. So this is uh, the ancient system that Krishna uses to transmit knowledge in this world. Uh, a chain of teachers coming one after another to pass down knowledge. I remember when I first heard about this, it, just, it was just like, wow, yes, of course, that must be the way, you know, that must be how absolute truth is there, of course. Uh, and I had quite a naive understanding of it at the time, of course, but, you know, it's quite a romantic vision uh, as a young, young man um, uh, of kind of like, you know, this secret school that is like, you know, secret knowledge is passed down and all these things. And of course, this, there's some, something to that, but uh, there's so much more to it, actually, and so much depth to, to this concept of parampara is, is very wonderful. Um, so as I say, so we will spend quite both these sessions on, on this concept. 
But just in, in a general way, um, ju and just in case there are some who may not be so familiar with uh, this concept, these concepts of Sampradaya and Parampara and like that. Uh, generally, Sampradaya uh, is a school of knowledge, uh, and usually with a particular specific philosophical conclusion, or Siddhanta. Sometimes you hear this term Siddhanta, which, which uh, refers to like the philos philosophical conclusion uh, that you find from the Shastra, for example, from, uh, uh, well, different, yeah, from the Shastra, but different Sampradayas uh, bring out certain specific um, Siddhantas uh, and focus on certain Siddhantas. And so a Sampradaya is a school of knowledge with specific uh, philosophical conclusions. And so the Parampara is a line of teachers who kept that knowledge alive through the history of that school, literally means one after another. So, uh, in India, you'll you'll find paramparas uh, not only for spiritual knowledge, um, but even and, and sampradayas also. Uh, you'll you'll find them for all sorts of subjects, uh, different kinds of arts, for example. There'll be a sampradaya or a school of a, a particular musical style, and so the teacher they'll teach that musical style uh, or an instrument to a student, and when they become masters then they also teach what they've learned and what they've mastered to the next student. And so one of the reasons Krishna brings this out here is he really wants to show Arjuna that what, what he's taught so far, it, it's really rooted in ancient times. Um, it's, not, it's not something new. Our Guru Maharaj has spoken uh, about this point uh, many times. He, he sometimes refers to the, um, uh, the Ivy schools in America, you know, like Harvard. Um, Stanford and so on, that because there's ivy growing on the walls, uh, you know, it shows um, how old they are uh, as, as buildings are so old, so the institutions are so old. And so they generally, they're seen as, as prestigious schools. Uh, there's some weight to them. So um, that's kind of what one of the, the things that are, is coming out here to Arjuna, that Krishna is really emphasizing, this isn't something new, new. This is something rooted in ancient times to really give Arjuna more and more faith in what he's been teaching. Because if we rewind to chapter uh, one, yeah, the first chapter, Arjuna was given so many reasons why he shouldn't fight, uh, really why he shouldn't act in his role as a warrior. Uh, and on one level, when you look at those arguments, they, they were shastrically based, you know, they, they were certainly rooted in Dharma Shastra. Many of the ex reasons that Arjuna gave, many of the excuses that Arjuna gave, for example. And of course, we did see Krishna take the discussion. We, we saw Krishna both defeat them in one, on, one, in, on one level, uh, on, on the Dharmic level also, but he also took the discussion to a higher platform in the second chapter and, 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 and kind of put Arjuna's arguments to rest uh, in, in a different way there. And so he was really emphasizing to Arjuna that Arjuna, you're not part of this world. You know, the, the famous, you're not this body, right? He's not this body, you're not this body, Arjuna. Uh, and so even for someone situated nicely in a Varnashram society, this isn't common knowledge. You know, this kind of thinking is uncommon, uh, even for someone, you know, who, who may be very, very dharmic. Uh, and we saw that even with Arjuna, right? That um, when he was given his arguments, so much of his focus was on material things. You know, the focus was on Svarga, for example, or heavenly enjoyment, um, you know, and that's generally uh, kind of the thinking uh, 
when, when someone is acting according to their dharma, you know, as, as a result of being a dutiful member of society, society, then one can attain heaven, one can attain svarga. This is the result of their piety. And also they want to avoid impiety because, of course, impiety will lead to hellish conditions uh, and these kind of things. And so Arjuna brought some of these arguments out there too. Um, so, he, you know, he was thinking on, on, on this kind of platform. And then Krishna came to him and said, you know, Arjuna, you're not, you're not any of these things, actually, you're not matter, you know, your consciousness. And so that's quite a big thing, even for such a pious person like him, you know, to be told you, you, you need to act outside the realm of duality, that even outside the realm of piety and impiety, which were very important uh, in, in that kind of society, uh, you, you know, even in general life too, right? Like moral, moral, morality and immorality, most people, or many people, um, of course, uh, times are uh, quite different these times, but still, you know, people kind of guide their lives according to morality as much as they can um, and try to avoid immorality. And obviously there are uh, deviations from that too and, and these kind of things. But, you know, that's kind of like the realm that most people act. So it can make one's head spin uh, to, to hear these kind of things that you should act outside the realm of duality uh, because the whole world and the way we generally act in it is centered on duality or the differences uh, between us and them, or in particular, in this case, this pleasurable situation and this uncomfortable situation, which is what Arjuna was doing. So Krishna's been putting out some of these, these kind of concepts and ideas that are a little more Upanishadic in nature than Dharmic. And so, and he has more to come. So he wants Arjuna to know, you know, what I'm teaching, there's some history, there's some weight to, to what I'm teaching. And other great personalities have achieved perfection by practicing what, what I'm speaking to Arjuna. So just like we're inspired or we're encouraged when we read or hear about previous saints who have practiced bhakti, for example, I'm sure many of you, you've heard many times the different pastimes of different acharyas and different saints in our lineage and these things. And it's very inspiring, right, when you hear these things. Uh, and so Arjuna will be inspired in a similar way to hear these names, especially of kings as well, uh, kings of ancient times, because, of, of course, Arjuna himself is a king. He's a warrior. And so... Although this teaching, it, it seems new to Arjuna, Krishna is saying, you know, it's past the test of time. And as we know from the second chapter, Krishna pointed out there that if something is more enduring or more lasting, then the more real or credible it is. Um, our, our Guru Maharaj often uses the example that when we, um, we, when we look at dreams and we look at waking reality, Really, we think that our waking reality is more real because our dreams um, don't last as long. Our, our, our life, you know, however many years we might live, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 years in this life, uh, you know, it lasts a lot longer uh, than some of the dreams we have. Uh, well, all of the dreams we have, uh, unless we have a really long dream, but yeah, all, all of the dreams we have. So, um, uh, because it lasts longer, we, we put more weight onto it. But if you think about it, as conscious entities, we still really experience, you know, all sorts of emotions and different phenomena in dreams, just like in waking life. I'm sure all of us have had that experience of waking up, you know, really scared or anxious or, or really happy after having a really good dream and these kind of things. So we experience the same kind of emotions that we experience in our waking life. We, we see things that just as we see objects in our waking life and all these kind of things, but it, they just don't endure as long. And so we don't think they're as, as real. And so we, we also 
uh, find in this first verse uh, of this fourth chapter, Krishna uses this word avyayam uh, to point out that this teaching that he's teaching, it's imperishable or eternal. Again, to really emphasize that fact that it's rooted in ancient times, but more than that, it, it, it's, it's an eternal teaching, you know, there, there is no beginning to this teaching. And so this is also a hint that ultimately uh, Krishna is teaching bhakti. As I say, it will come out more as, as we go through, as you'll see. But um, Krishna is kind of hinting from the get-go here, because bhakti, as we know, is beyond the three modes of nature. It's nirguna, beyond the three modes. And so it's imperishable in the full sense of the term. Uh, you know, we've heard many, many times the practice of bhakti and the fruit of bhakti are both imperishable. The fruit of bhakti, of course, being Krishna prema, which is another form of bhakti. Uh, so, you know, there's bhakti in the beginning, bhakti in the end. And so, so it's imperishable. Whereas the other yogas, certainly they, they, they have an eternality to them in that they're found in the scripture. The scriptures are eternal. Uh, so it's said. So the other yogas, they, they're, they're eternal in that sense. And they can lead one up the yoga ladder to liberation. But the actual practices themselves and the yoga practices themselves, they're given up when they reach their goals. So when one attains jnana, for example, generally one will give up karma yoga in a, in a classical sense. And when one, one attains mukti or liberation, then one gives up jnana yoga. So they're vehicles to get to where they want to go. So um, Paguru Maharaj points out the bhakti, though, it's, it's a liberated yoga uh, rather than a yoga for liberation, because it can liberate us, as we know. But it also continues. It continues in post-transcendence, as he sometimes puts it. So we see from the start of this chapter that although in one sense Krishna is speaking about Nyam Bhakti, and, and that's, that is brought out as well, we'll see that Bhakti is really brought, brought out um, too and hinted at and, and will be brought out more as we go through these verses. And so what Krishna is explaining, it's not temporary. Uh, meaning, it, it, you know, relating to time and circumstances, the essence of it actually is eternal. It's nitya tattva, sometimes said, eternal truths. So he wants to really impress this on Arjuna, that the teaching, it never becomes outdated, actually, and it never becomes irrelevant for the passage of time. I really like um, Madhvacharya. He gave, gives a nice example in his commentary that, you know, these teachings, they're, they're always relevant and they remain ever fresh, just as nature does in the universe. And I really like this example of nature uh, to understand uh, these points about, about the teaching and its expression in this world. Um, because as we know, nature, it's constantly renewing itself. Yeah, it, it has the same essence. It has the same principles. So, you know, you could say, depending on how we look at it, but nature, we could say it was created in the beginning of time uh, and you know, the beginning of this universe. And the fundamental laws are the same now in the world as they have always been in their essence, even though there may be a difference in the, in the form or the manifestation. Um, so, for example, a nice example I was thinking of before is that, you know, we, we've had like different periods, uh, at least according to, to modern geology and these kind of things. We, we have an ice age and other periods where the form of nature changes. And it seems very different to other periods of time. You know, they were like tropical times where the whole earth was said to be more tropical and these kind of things. But the essence or underlying natural principles still remain the same. Even though the world looked very different during the ice age, 
the landscape of the land and all these kind of different things they were very different e even uh you know possibly the the um the wildlife the plants and these kind of things but if you put ice near heat you know it would still melt just as it does now um so those principles were still there uh the, the chain is just yeah it just manifests nature manifests in a different way so the chain of teachers they also adapt the details according to time and place, as we know, but they, they still deliver the same principles. And we're going to look more into the dynamic nature of the Prampara next week. But it's a nice point that the essence stays the same. And so it's imperishable. So this is why Krishna uses this term to point out that it's imperishable. And so given that it's imperishable knowledge, Krishna points out that he himself is the source of that knowledge. And, th and then he gives some great names, as we know, the different leaders of the human race, uh, according to Vedic history, who he's passed down this knowledge to. So, of course, Viviswan, the sun god, Manu, Ishwaku. And Krishna is highlighting to Arjuna by using these names that this knowledge is meant for extraordinary people. So he uses in the second verse, he uses the term Raja Rishi. And so Raja means king and Rishi means visionary. Uh, so these wise kings. These are the type of persons who this knowledge was passed down to. Um, and we'll discuss uh, Krishna being the source of knowledge next week, because this will lead Arjuna to question Krishna, uh, which will open the door for more knowledge. But it's significant that Raja Rishis are those given as examples uh, of the kind of people who, who are part of the parampara, if you will, who, who represent the parampara, the, the persons in the succession of teachers who, who the teaching can be passed on to. Because although Krishna is referring to literal kings, these personalities were kings, they, it's pointed out that they're actually considered kings because they rule over the mind and the senses. And as we know, the mind and senses, they rule the world, really. That's what makes everything move in the world. That's what causes us to move and do different things in the world. And so Krishna's explained in the previous chapter, like I was mentioning, mentioning earlier, how they are also the place where calm or lust resides, where, where attachment uh, resides. They, they reside in the mind, it resides in the mind, resides in the senses, and also, of course, in the intelligence. Um, but these personalities, they've conquered that insatiable enemy, as Krishna word terms it, and so they're considered wise kings. And so we also see that uh, when we look at those luminaries in our own parampara as great kings. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, I know it can be used in a general sense for sannyasis, but particularly also for, for um, elevated personalities, sometimes use the term Maharaj, right? Like great kings, because they're, they're um, meant, meant to have <laughs> conquered over their mind and senses, you know, because they fully surrendered to Hrishikesh, uh, the master of the senses. So they're, they're saintly and well-balanced people. And we'll see later in the Gita, Krishna say that this is the king of knowledge, uh, Raja Vidya, Raja Guyam, this, this verse. But our Guru Maharaj points out in speaking about this verse that there's another way to look at it, that Krishna is saying, um, yeah, it's the king of knowledge, but also it's the knowledge of kings, meaning saintly people, the knowledge of the saints. Uh, so I thought that was quite, quite a nice insight. So um, these saints, as, as we know, they come one after another. And it's continuous, like an unbroken chain. Uh, so there's no such thing as an end to Prampara, for example. It's ongoing. Uh, I'm sure many of you have experienced, sometimes there can be misunderstandings of the, of the principle of Guru. And practitioners may think that 
that my guru was the last in the chain, uh, for example. The obvious example of, is, of course, the Ritvik philosophy. But I've also heard in my own experience other devotees in, in other maths. Uh, they speak about how their guru was the last pure devotee to appear, for example. Um, and But really, uh, at least as, as um, I understand you know, what Krishna is bringing out here in, in these verses, uh, it, it's kind of an oxymoron to say that our, our parampara stops here because parampara literally means one after another. It kind of misses the meaning of parampara, which unfortunately we sometimes see in contemporary Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So for those who are not familiar with this term oxy, oxymoron, uh, I don't know if I'm even pronouncing it right, um, but it's like a self-contradicting self words or terms, different, different contradictory terms. Um, so to give an example, like to grow smaller, you know, when we think of growing, it's like getting bigger, but then smaller, grow smaller or extinct life. You know, if something's extinct, it doesn't have life. So <laughs> extinct life, how, how does that go together? Of course, you know, there is some meaning can be derived from it. But, um, you know, the point is there's some, some contradiction in the terms. And so that this, this is really kind of the nature also of, of if we think that um, the chain is broken, there's no meaning to parampara if it's not ongoing. So it makes no sense to say that it stops here with this person or that person, or this is the last link in our chain. But it's true, and this is something we're going to look into next time. Uh, Krishna does say that sometimes the science appears to be lost and it needs re revitalizing. Sometimes it seems the parampara does stop. Um, but for now, we're going to get more into that next week. But for now, it's interesting to note this point about, about Parampara, that Krishna is always in this world, and he comes through his devotees, that they share the knowledge of Krishna. And we'll see this late in later sessions, that they also draw Krishna here personally as well by their love. And so this is Krishna's system. And so our Guru Maharaj, he points out in relation to this point that any problems found within the system isn't eliminating the system. We, we shouldn't think that, okay, the system's broken. Let's just do away with the system, find a new system, because it's Krishna's system. But the system itself is the solution to problems, that we find the next representation of Krishna in the world. And he may come in more than one way. Uh, it's not that there's just one you know, uh, linear line, for example, but Krishna brings another uh, you know, to fill these deficiencies, to, to fill these shortcomings or, or seeming shortcomings, you know, such as when the, the, the Acharya, the current Acharyas, they leave the planet, for example. And sometimes there may be misunderstandings on the teaching. Um, you know, we'll bring out some of those re reasons next time. Um, and also the teaching can be misrepresented, teacher, and the teachers may not live up to the standard uh, that, that is expected of them in that role. They, maybe they're not really Rajarishis in, in the full sense of the term. There, there are many diff different kind of um, things that happen, and I'm sure many of us have, have experienced or heard about and so on. But the, the solution itself is the Guru Parampara. It's not stopping the Parampara. And so Krishna himself revitalizes the system by sending other great souls. And, and they shed new light on the teaching, but they still have this, again, this imperishable underlying principles, the, the underlying teaching, the essence of the teaching there. And this happens on a larger scale, but it also happens within our own lives and our own practice. And this is something, again, I'm just kind of giving teasers for next week because we're going to go a bit deeper into them next week. But just to give a nice example, um, our Guru, Guru Maharaj, he speaks about how the Parampara manifests in another way in his life when Srila Prabhupada had left the planet. So he, he was the representative 
as we know, Srila Prabhupada of the Prampara for practically, you know, the entire Western world of Gaudiya Vaishnavas, Vaishnavas at the time, except for, for some, you know, there were some who had come in touch in other ways prior to Prabhupada, just like some of the personalities that um, Shamananda mentioned in, in his recent series. Um, but, you know, but Prabhupada was the Acharya for, for uh, the majority of the Western world at that time. And when Prabhupada left, there, there was a lot of confusion. And it may have seemed for some that the Parampara had stopped. Um, but Aguru Maharaj shares his experience. And it's an, a nice quote to read. Um, so he, he says, With the setting of the sun of the manifest pastimes of our beloved preceptor, Srila A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, the world became dark. Then suddenly, in the shadows of the night, the reflected light of the moonlike discourse of Srila Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Goswami flooded the path with new light and dynamic insight that illumined the inner landscape, leading me to the soul of Srila Prabhupada and Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So we'll explore these points more thoroughly in the next session and how Krishna descends in this way in our personal lives as well, uh, being connected to the, to the Prampara. But I thought this was a nice quote to end this session on, to emphasize that the Prampara is always present in this world. That's kind of the key takeaway, I guess, uh, even if it's not always visible to everyone. Um, and it'll set the stage nicely for going a bit deeper into these points for next time, too. So with that, I think I'm going to end. And if anyone would like to share anything um, or has any corrections or, or questions, these kind of things, please feel free to unmute yourself. Um, Krishna. Hi Krishna. Hi Krishna. Krishna I just wanted thank you. I just wanted to thank you for the um, really nice introductory class that I'm really excited about being able to um, dig deeper into chapter four. And I really, really like what your Guru Maharaj said about when Srila Prabhupada left the planet and then he was then connected with um, Sridhar Swami. That's very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. And just looking forward to oh, the rest you. of the classes. Jai, thanks, Krishna Kumari. It's, uh, re we really appreciate appreciate uh, you being here too. I've heard some of your questions and comments on the some of the other sessions. So thank you for that. And yeah, we look look forward to going deeper into the fourth chapter with you. <laughs> Haribo. Anyone else have anything they'd like to? Oh, Haribo, Shan. How you doing? Thank you. <laughs> like I want to say the same thing basically that, that Krishna Kumari said like thank you so much for the class and especially that quote was very beautiful <laughs> about Guru Maharaj but... it's, it's actually on, on Wikipedia as well actually it's on the Wikipedia I'm not sure where it's hmm. from originally um, uh, maybe, maybe there's a link for the source uh, I, I didn't check actually but I remember reading it a number of years ago when I was looking him up on Wikipedia <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, very, very, very beautiful. Very beautiful, like you say. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we'll wrap up today then. And um, yeah, thank you all for being here. And uh, we'll, I guess, yeah, next Saturday, same time, same place. So, Hare Krishna. Bunch of kalpa trubis chai, krupas and dubi eva chai, but then I'm bhavan and salvation of the only one. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Listen to the key, John.